0: You're not going to be friends with the animatronic Abraham Lincoln in Disneyland, right? Tell that to Dave Cat, who has
1: like a hundred sex dolls.
0: Hi, I'm Andy, and I'm Roger. And welcome
1: to the middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. That's fatphobic. I don't feel war. I just want a to see war. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death. Of the Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams, in my childhood, with your empty words. Andy, how are you
0: doing? Back to work this week after a period of leave. You're still on leave, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I'm a I'm a free man. I've been um, living like a a hippie in Byron Bay for the last week. Did you go to Nimbin? I didn't know, but. Um, yeah, didn't didn't yep. have to uh, leave the main town to to uh, smell the the peace in the air, so to speak.
0: You don't even need to um, procure your own; you just uh, get high off the um, the fumes. Is that right?
1: We're talking about kombucha, right?
0: Oh, I was talking about LSD. I don't know
1: what you're talking about. <laughs> I think I was saying to you before that Byron Bay, I think, lives up to the hype. And for those listening overseas, it's it's like a beach town with a twist. I think, and some um, you know a lot of recently a lot of celebrities have ended up buying property there or living there, such as um, Zach Efron and uh, Chris Hemsworth or Thor. Uh, and I can really see why, you know, has a lot to offer families and a lot to offer. Um, is something for everyone. I think
0: one of the things with Byron Bay is the whole hippie vibe is very contrived because most people there are like tourists, right? They're coming in from capital cities or, you know, and it's not a cheap place to go on holiday. So people are kind of going there and all right this is my week away and i'll i'll bring all of the you know i'll i'll um make a few daisy chains and things like that um
1: (laughs) they're like yuppies that are pretending to to be hippies and live free for a week or two before they go back to their stressful jobs
0: yeah the reality is the people who are living that kind of existence in that part of the world they're nowhere near Byron bay they're they're in the hinterland in their little communes and you know they've got to save up like a month to afford like the bus trip into town or whatever. They're not they're not spending six hundred dollars a night in the five star hotels in in Byron Bay.
1: So you're saying they were judging me for having my sixteen dollar acai bowl every uh, every morning? How do you spell that? A H S E E no, A C A I yeah. acai. So I I mean
0: I see that that word a lot, but like it's not one that I hear pronounced very much. So <laughs> if you had said oh my 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 Aki or my Achi or my Achai or Akaya. My... <laughs> Yep. Okay. Sounds good to me. It's um equally you could be saying it completely wrong and I wouldn't know. So what did you think about our discussion last week on boomers?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting one. I've been bombarded by a series of articles about this wealth transfer, this great wealth transfer that may be coming. And it got me thinking actually, you know, if I was, you know, if we were in their shoes And we were sitting on a fairly sizable kind of wealth heading into retirement. How exactly would you behave? Like how much would you partition off for your kids versus actually, no, well, I need to really, you know, live my retirement right.
0: I mean, I think a very selfish and hedonistic approach would be, well, I've I've got this much money in the bank, this much disposable assets or liquid assets that I can use to do whatever I want. So I'm just going to have like the most awesome overseas trip that's, you know, (laughs) it's possible to like mankind. But I don't think people want to do that when they get to a certain age anyway. Like, and I don't mean don't want to do it because they don't want to I don't travel know, those cruises. I mean, more <laughs> from the perspective of you start to value maybe different things. So you, you, you're more thinking about legacy when you reach a certain stage in your life. And the thought of being able to give your children a better quality of life. And of course, it's then your children's children, grandchildren, whatever. That passing it on is actually something that you value as an older person who maybe almost feels like a sense in, a sense of pride or in doing that.
1: Yeah, I really like that idea of almost spending it on the grandkids, right? Because by the time you're ready to pass that wealth on, obviously your kids are grown adults with their own families, hopefully, or or whatever it is. And so you can still relive that experience of, you know, uh, spoiling the kids by doing it as a grandparent. And I really like that idea because you can be a bit more frivolous and buy things that are fun, you know, like obviously, you know, buying a toy or something for a kid, just you see so much joy in there in their eyes and you probably don't get that same <laughs> that same impact by giving your son or daughter you know 100k to pay off their mortgage they'd be like still happy but not in the same way
0: but even like that's still very like at the margin hedonistic stuff right you know i remember my my grandma always used to buy like a a milky way bar that would be like oh yeah that's great you know but like <laughs> even for my grandma who was not rich by any stretch of the imagination uh, a milky way bar was was probably you know a couple of dollars or no well at that time it was probably like 40 cents or something. Not a huge share of the income, but I guess if we're talking like genuine wealth here, I think that's where passing it on to your kids so they can in turn pass it on to their kids.
1: Damn that inheritance tax, eh?
0: Well, we don't have one in Australia. Yeah. So so Roger, one of the areas of the episode last week that I think we touched on was you know getting into the housing market and the advantages that boomers have. And we had a little bit of a discussion of the extent to which that wealth transfer actually was a, a leg up to boomers when they were getting to the housing market and i think on reflection i think we might have been talking about maybe different things so i think i was probably talking about it in the context of them getting into the housing market in let's let's say you know in their mid-20s or whatever when it really wasn't like a benefit to them at that time because they were actually quite poor like they didn't actually have anything at that time and then i presume you were talking about the more general sense of like a wealth transfer, like the intergenerational wealth that does accumulate between generations. So I just thought, um, yeah, I might just um, circle back to that and see whether you had any anything more to say.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you hit it uh, you know, right on there. And I think there was a point in there where it was like, oh, they didn't have much. It was only, um, they only had like a couple of hundred grand. <laughs> That's still a couple of hundred more than m- most of the migrants' families would probably uh, receive. But I understand timing. timing of it
0: not when they were buying property they didn't have no no no, that's
1: that's all something that kind of builds up over time is what i meant i i agree with what you're saying look i think um it's uh my view on that too of like the and we touched on this in a few different episodes maybe the kids one i just think that um the way the the housing market was back then this idea of having a good single kind of income in middle class still could afford you with, you know, with different attitudes towards spending and saving, you could kind of have entrance into that property ownership ladder. And I think that's the thing that's the the biggest change when you look, you know, how, how that's, how that kind of attitudes changed over time. And even just the other week, there was an article about that, right? Like some old retired boomers going off about how the reason why young people are struggling to buy property is because they're not, they're going out too much or eating, you know, Uber Eats and things like that. So I think that to me, that still is a big theme that there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think
0: I, I do think, like, just to defend boomers a little bit on some of those points, there is, you know, I think young people, when they spend their disposable income in that way, it's it's out of like hopelessness that they do have any prospect at buying, let's say, a house in in Sydney or Melbourne. So there's what's the point in saving for a deposit? If, do you think is that conscious though? Well, it might not be conscious, but I would definitely say that if you are saving for a deposit and you're ordering Uber Eats every night, then sure, like probably the boomers are right then, aren't they? Um, why do you think you can't get a deposit? obviously you've got to look at your spending patterns. I mean, it's it's like we, we might rag on them for the ham sandwich, but hey, the ham sandwich isn't, doesn't cost a lot of money, right? So they were saving money in a way that young people aren't today. But I guess what I'm maybe drawing on is that I can imagine that many young people would say, well, look, if the median Sydney house price is over a million dollars, I need a 20% deposit, which is $200,000 plus stamp duty, which is another $40,000 or more. So where am I going to get $240,000 from? Well, screw it. I'll just rent and live a good life, right? Yeah, I suppose so.
1: And I probably it's probably worth saying too that huge acknowledgement that people of our generation um, have had a lot of legs up too, right? Not in the and, and maybe like you said, we've had to have that. But most people that I know that have entered the property market have been helped out by their parents or whatever it is in some way right? And that, that way may change from the wealth of the particular family, but that, you know, that makes a lot of difference. Yeah, And I think that everyone I know has been helped out in some way.
0: And I think that the challenge with that is that that's actually has been out of necessity. Yeah. And when you, when you actually, for a second, take stock of that, that it's a necessity for your parents to help you get in the housing market, which is true for Sydney and Melbourne, then it really does beg the question, what kind of effect does that actually have on some of these equity effects, you know, people yeah. who don't have parents who can help them out?
1: But, but that's what I meant about that whole immigrant thing too, right? Like, um, and I know not everyone's story is like this, but my parents came like with, you know, that, that zero bank balance kind of situation and they built it up all themselves, right? and they still managed to to kind of claw their way in. All right. Do you remember first social media software you ever used? Uh
0: well, it truly the first social media I ever used if you use a very broad definition would have been a a chat room back when they you know it wasn't instant messaging it was chat rooms. I think it was called Club Z. Club Z. Yeah, it was this like um we just got the internet put on. I think it was dial or it was certainly dial up. And it would be ninety eight or ninety nine, probably ninety eight. So we, yeah, we so we had the dial up, and at that sort of phase of the internet, your ISP controlled a little bit more your internet use, and there weren't search engines that was like click a link if you're interested in this topic and we'll take you to an index, right? <laughs> so this so the ISP we had, I think, had their sort of homepage or whatever that did this, and then it had like chat chat rooms. So it was called Club Z. And because it was connected to the ISP, connected in Australia, like all of the people were Australian in this Club Z, and it was this really shitty. But I was kind of quite fascinated with it, with this like idea of talking to complete strangers, and you could it was quite mesmerizing. So I guess technically that would be the first social media, but I am not sure if that fits within the um, the you know the definition of social media. Well, how would you define social media when you when we say talk about social media? What what how do you define it?
1: Yeah, I, I I guess I I draw a line in the sand. I guess with instant messaging and then profile pages, things like um, that help you sell your identity on the web. Things I'm thinking, you know, your MySpaces and then Facebooks, you know, and, and things like that. And there were there were lots of different versions of that before ultimate supremacy came um, in the form of you know Facebook, Instagram, and all these places like that. I mean, my my history with it is so intertwined with the personal computer, right? My parents were absolutely technology um, challenged, technologically challenged. They were almost illiterate. I had to really beg them for a computer. And they got me a, an IBM PS1-2, and they didn't know how to use it at all. It was all me uh, figuring it out myself. And as a result, they, they didn't understand it. They didn't police it. And I guess by the time that happened for me in my house, I was probably straight on to a platform called ICQ, the original gangster. And it was a, um, I still remember today, like the little cube became a cat and had a little animation on it. And essentially it was a chatting service. So you could add people and do instant messaging. And yeah, I, I remember it really vividly that it, it kind of landed when we were in high school. And it was the first time that I guess I experienced this paradigm shift of having an online presence and personality. Versus your life-to-life interactions with someone.
0: So I definitely remember at high school, and I think I recounted a story in a previous episode about using like ICQ and these instant messaging, like MSN Messenger and stuff at school and how it was this foreign concept. I never really personally got into my space in any way. I didn't really use it or engage with it. but. Definitely Facebook by the time that had come along. But I've, I've just done a quick little search. Like this is um, Google engrams where you can kind of see where like words sort of first emerged. So social media prior to 2003 was just never, it just wasn't used. Like the, the, the term social media didn't exist. It was only really from 2004 onwards that the term really rocketed up. So, yeah, so I guess it really is a 2004 onwards sort of thing. And I think that coincides with MySpace and and Facebook definitely, like Facebook for me, like when I think about contemporary social media, that's what I think of.
1: Yeah, I guess another way, like obviously trying not to make this too IT focused and I'm I'm holding back some of my, you know, my culture and kind of um, my industry, but there is this kind of concept simple concept of web 1.0 versus web 2.0 and the main kind of elements of 1.0 the the environment the early internet was characterized by a more read-only reading platform static text based so really like you said it was click this link and then maybe someone had written an article or released some information and so you just kind of consumed it right so more of a directory encyclopedia style approach and then web 2.0 as a, as a kind of branch is more characterized by this read-write collaboration. So it's like a publishing platform. It's dynamic. It lets you uh, have this kind of multi-modal experience where you can comment on people's things, you can share your own pictures, you can interact in chat rooms and instant messaging and, and things like that.
0: Yeah, and, and look, I guess, so today, I mean, today we're talking about social media, but and
1: maybe just to riff on that sort
0: of concept, I think for the purposes of today, you know, we'll talk about a few different topics, but I think the part of what drives a lot of both pros and cons of social media is the algorithm. The, the, the fact that you have this thing that takes a, you know, a methodical approach to kind of guiding human interaction and it inserts itself in between humans who are trying to interact and it has this effect or impact and, in the context of a discussion about social media, I mean, I think the social part sort of suggests, uh, okay, instant messaging and Facebook where you can have friends and you, you build a social network and whatever. But increasingly, I think when we talk about social media, we, we're also probably are talking about things like YouTube and may, maybe they're not in that kind of traditional mold, but they, it's the same sort of things, right? Where, um and, and even news websites like you click on like a news website and you get a different page than your your neighbor next to you that opens the same website. So all of these things are merging into kind of not just like, you know, a, a siloed approach, but they, they're common across all domains on the yeah. internet.
1: I find it really interesting too about the connotations around the algorithm, which is kind of used as almost a negative nowadays. But you've got to remember, you know, back before, back in the day it was hard to find things. The internet is just one vast content library. Uh, and before Google came or, came along, it was really hard to find things. And I think when... Well, I
0: never would have found Club Z if... Uh...
1: <laughs> it wasn't pinned to your ISP links. But, but nowadays, like, so back in the day, the algorithm there was celebrated. It was like, isn't it amazing how you can type anything you want into Google and you find it? You know, websites are indexed. They're kind of, they're sorted and you can actually and that is the algorithm working that's the positive side of finding something that is relevant to you now though because of this kind of data this saturation of data and noise especially from social media the algorithm is seen as something that may manipulate you right or have have some kind of motive or you know manipulation in your life whether it be through advertising or other forces at work
0: okay well let's um Let's talk then about the impacts of social media. Let's just maybe take a couple of steps back and just talk about the good, right? So in some respects, it would be sort of unfair to sort of go straight into the, you know, social media is killing our society and, you know, relationships and all of that. So maybe we we should spend some time going through the, the good side of it.
1: I think the reason that social media is so big and is such has changed so many lives is that it's tapped into something very, very human. And that is the, you know, the, the want to connect. And that's what social media is incredible at doing, right? Like it has allowed a massive network of connection to occur that would otherwise be very, very impractical. And so, you know, being able to stay in touch with old contacts and and network and people who are now globally dispersed, all these kind of technological tools enable that, right? Being able to stay in contact with your... Your relatives and stuff and, and we've seen that you know in times of separation such as pandemics and things like that that it's been an incredibly powerful tool not every friendship needs to be as uh you know carefully cultivated as a one-on-one you know close inner circle there is some benefit in having staying in touch with people intermittently as a, as a different kind of style of engagement so i think that it fosters connection makes it easier to stay in touch with people that you otherwise might not. And I think there's a secondary thing that i throw in there that I mentioned with messaging, which is kind of the birth of my, you know, it's my kind of origin story with social media. It allows you to communicate in a way that you may not be able to do effectively in a face-to-face situation. And I think a lot of people have learned a lot about themselves by using text-based messaging. What about, what about about What about you? What would you say... On top of that list is, is your positives for social media.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, look, I guess in not to sort of sound like a, an old fogey, but like, you know, the good old days of like Facebook, I think, because I don't think it's that anymore. But I remember when Facebook sort of first became a thing. And I mean, in some ways, it wasn't as an idea that different to say MySpace or other there were probably other ideas, but it was just sort of the one that took off. And had the network effects. The value of, of Facebook was that actually there were people you you knew on it, right? So a lot of the other social media platforms had no one you knew, you knew on it in real life. So there's no there's no value in in joining it. Whereas Facebook came along and and yeah, actually like more than half the people you went to school with were there. And my my mum got on it. You know, it was like families. You know, you're connecting people from overseas, so you can see what you do, what people are doing, and all this sort of stuff. And but you know, it's um it's a completely different. Beast now so I guess sorry that's a long-winded way of saying that um, I kind of agree with everything you said before around connecting people and that's yeah Facebook of old was was um, that for me
1: yeah all right well let's let's like roll on to what the perceived downsides of social media are. and we don't have to just stick with Facebook obviously we can kind of paint with a, a broad brush here
0: yeah I mean it's kind of like the good bad and the ugly because I think when it comes to like Facebook and social media there's like the good, which we've just spoken about. Then there's like a few sort of bad things that that we might talk about. But then there's like this really dark side that the ugly, if you like, that um, maybe isn't necessarily immediately apparent. So maybe we can cover those today. But I guess just in in terms of um, maybe to stick with some of the more obvious downsides that maybe people talk about. You know, I read a story about how um, you know high school students have to now lock their Phones when they go into school at the gate, they have to get a pouch and then like lock it um, wow. before they enter the. You know, so it's obviously having a huge impact on um, people's attention span. How do you think it's um, impacting our ability to focus and um, connect in real life?
1: Yeah, I, I think that um, just just setting the scene for my first my justification of the positives. I think it's like the the black mirror of that, right? The the fact that yes, it's human nature. It's tapped into human nature and the want for connection. But humans also are very social creatures. We're very hierarchical. We're very tribal. And so we're always jostling for our position in society. And so I think that that shows a really dark side of us that kind of wants to show off, wants to gain position and gain favor because networks were so important to, to our survival. That's very obvious to me, right? Like the people with friends survived and the ones that didn't have networks and, and so on didn't. So it's very, very important to us. And that kind of displays itself as a lot of, you know, often poor online behaviour. To your question on focusing, social media is not the only thing responsible for this. It's really our kind of search and search and query culture enabled by the internet, and I think it's exacerbated by having smartphones. I think that those things together have made us have that really poor attention span, this kind of high dopamine hit style culture, because you can search anything you want and you can and you can get it. So it's this just in time. Instant recall, instant gratification, enabled by smartphones that you can just take out of your pocket, and it makes it really hard to to compete with that, and especially for kids, right? Like, but even for us, even without all that smartphone stuff, having a phone in your pocket when you could message people, you know, you could text people and and communicate was very, very distracting.
0: The irony of of that is that you you might interrupt a, a genuine exchange with someone in your presence to read that other messages because you actually connecting with someone else but in the process you're actually weakening the potential for a a, you know a much deeper level of of engagement i guess just to reflect back on your earlier comment around the smartphone i think that's definitely like supercharged a lot of these trends right but what social media does and this is like another algorithm oriented criticism is that essentially social media and and you know using that in the broad sense to include things like YouTube and the news you get fed up on your social media platforms and the people you follow on on Twitter or whatever we're increasingly in silos right so yeah. the news you read reflects the world you live in in an online sense and it's different to the person next to you who is seeing completely different news to you, interested in completely different topics, and this is kind of driving like this, you know, this divergence, you know, where people become more and more extreme because they're more down one rabbit warren, yeah, and the confirmation diverging bias. like at a very rapid pace. Whereas, I guess maybe the counterfactual is, you know, in the past, you know, I'm just sort of, I just sort of think, you know, I think back to when like Survivor. The very first season of Survivor, and you know, it was that water cooler TV show, and everyone watched Survivor, and everyone sort of, had, you know, it was like no matter what your political views are, we'll, we'll always have Survivor. So, but ne- but not anymore because um, none of us watch the same shows or, or read the same newspapers, or in fact, we don't read newspapers. We we read, um, you know, news. headlines. Yeah. So um, yeah.
1: So like, what, what do you think about that? This confirmation bias that happens online, where you know that echo chamber of. You just keep on getting served up more of what you like, right? And it keeps on reinforcing your view. This is something that the algorithm does by design. And I think the thing for people to remember is that it's a business, you know, it's a market and and the goal of the platform is to keep you on the platform and increase your engagement and connection with the platform for as long as possible and to go as deep as possible. And so I think when you start to kind of understand that you you have a chance of breaking free from it
0: it's exploiting human behavior
1: yeah it's a tool to kind of get you to a probably the conclusion faster and more extreme because you you already do that right like obviously if you're more right wing leaning versus left wing you'll you choose your news outlets right and people definitely do that over the time whether it's the telegraph or the herald and all sorts of different like things in between right back in back before social media but now it's just on steroids and i think the other thing is that there's a lot of i suppose misinformation out there now which is hard because you can it can be used as a tool to to influence people
0: they do studies of these sorts of questions and one of the questions they ask is they show kids or young yeah, you know, like younger people like articles like presented online and pieces of news and they ask younger people to you know to read and encounter the pieces of news and essentially what i think the studies show is that young people have no ability no acumen to like call bullshit, but the other cohort are people who didn't really grow up with the internet, yeah, so or computers. So, older people who, if it's printed somewhere, it's on a screen, it looks kind of professional.
1: It's in Times New Roman, baby.
0: So it has to be real, like this can't be yeah. fake.
1: <laughs> and it's on the Facebook,
0: and this is the other group that I think is quite vulnerable and. and to, you know, cons- to conspiracy theories or aren't sort of used to kind of being having their wits about them when they're navigating mm-hmm. on the internet let's call it savvy just to maybe get to some of the other pitfalls
1: what what do you think the impacts on our younger people are this one's a tough one right it's like giving them the keys to the car and they don't know how to drive you know and then and i know that anyone who's young is going to find that very very insulting but what what i mean by that is that I kind of hinted at this before at the start of this episode. Behavior changes when you're online. In the very first episode, we spoke about how being part of a religious community is akin to being part of a small country town. People treat each other better when they know they're going to run into the same people over and over again. And it's going to be, they're going to need to work with them in the future. And there's going to be impacts and uh, there's, going to, there's going to be impacts of their actions, right? They're going to be responsible for them. Online that completely changes. You can be next to anonymous and therefore you have no real consequences for your actions online. And the resulting behavior is just a really, really dark side of, of humanity. And especially in the kind of dizzy days of being a kid and you're, you're developing, you're trying to find your place, you're full of hormones and all sorts of things. It can result in some pretty horrible behavior. And I think that that leads to a big discussion around cyberbullying, troll culture, and you know, like, I needed a refresher course in this cuz you know my kids are too young to be dealing with this at the moment but it's, it's a concern for every parent because um the stats speak for themselves that it's pretty horrendous that over 80% of kids experience cyberbullying
0: one of the drivers of this is the need to obtain status in school so we kind of and you spoke to this before you know we're in dominance hierarchies and for girls in particular so for boys I think this is less of an issue because and it is still an issue but like boys haven't traditionally competed on the same things that girls do so the competition between boys within a school context is like things like sport and being rough and all that sort of stuff it's different right whereas for girls in particular it is things like showing off a certain lifestyle or appearance or whatever from what i understand um, girls do tend to have far bigger like psychological impacts related to social media and there there's been you know significant increase in mental health challenges for younger people and girls experience it worse than boys for you know i mean this is one reason speculated
1: there's a great book on that actually um that i've read called queen bees and wannabes and it's about how female social cliques and social groups really use psychologically damaging instruments you know mainly based around exclusion from groups and things to really target uh, other women and and develop their their dominance in the hierarchy so um it's obviously social media is just tinder to that fire what is your view on access? When is it right? What kind of access to social media tools? And I include, you know, access to a smartphone and things like that in that. When's the right age? Under what kind of guidance? Have you, have you thought about that?
0: Well, it hasn't come up as a, you know, like he's too young to have a phone and stuff like that. I mean, he's got like an iPad that he, but, you know, and this is why I think earlier on when we were talking about like what is the definition of social media I really want to make sure we we're talking about YouTube as well in that sort yeah. of broad anywhere you can of-
1: interact right and you can
0: comment well, and communicate. Well, and so. I mean it's not it's not so much the commenting bit. Again it's just the it's the algorithm like because I see it on his account like like cause he does watch a lot of YouTube like he's like he he doesn't watch free to air TV. A little bit of Netflix stuff and like, I, I kind of am aware of what he's watching. So, like, you know, I know that he's not going down any, like, really dark rabbit warrens or anything like that. And, and in fact, some of it, like, and maybe one of the reasons why I'm quite open to him using YouTube is that, like, I'll see him watching some educational thing. I'm like, oh, okay, this is pretty good, like, science stuff. Or yeah, even the other day, like, I saw him watching some, like, you've <laughs> never imagined like a kid watching this but it was like this video about planning in Sydney like planning the, the cities like and building like the infrastructure ra- yeah, like so I, that's part of the reason why I'm not too worried about it but certainly there's mixed in there there's a lot of like video gamers and you know kind of yeah. commenting videos and stuff like that and it's all kind of above board and you know whatever it's, else but
1: it's so hard to keep track though like I, I even in longer based things like with my daughter who loves TV it's like part of the reason you put TV on is so that you can do other things you need to do as a parent. And so you don't actually end up watching what they're watching because that kind of defeats the purpose of.
0: Well, that's, the, well, that's a good thing of having YouTube though, because you can, you can actually look back and see what they've actually the history, watched. Yeah. Uh, but you're not history, watching it but, um, Like
1: you don't, you don't watch it yourself.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I guess what I was going to say in, in the context of YouTube and I see it reflected back to me sometimes. Right. So like in the way he speaks, so it's kind of shaping him in some ways. So he'll um he'll say something like actually today i've got a funny story So, today he like we were signing up to this account thing and he said and we couldn't get the pr- like the fir- the primary name right so he said okay make this u- the username and it was like two words I said oh so i can't use that it's unavailable and then he said okay make it that and then 69 <laughs> and then i'm like okay all right 69 that was taking two and then i just sort of remarked to him so he's so he's 10, right? So I said, oh, who would have thought that would have been taken? And then he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just a funny number. And then oh, I man. said, oh, why is it a funny number? And he said, oh, because it's like a six and then an upside down six, which is a nine. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's really funny. He
1: said, oh, yeah, it's just like an internet meme for some reason. That makes me really happy, the fact that there's like – what would be funny, though, is if when he grows up and he tells you the story later, and he's like, oh, Dad, I was totally bullshitting you and I knew exactly what it was. <laughs> the thing is, right, like on YouTube, some of the comments are pretty rowdy. And so exposing kids to that, I guess, is, uh, is exposing them to a form of dialogue that is, is kind of like open to all ages, I suppose. Well, uh,
0: he he doesn't, like he watches it on the TV.
1: So he, he's not
0: exposed to any comments and doesn't engage in any of that. It just serves him up the next video, the next video, and that's why next thing you know, it, he's watching like um, the thirty-year plan for Sydney's three cities um,
1: vision. You know, so <laughs> the infographics were mesmerizing. <laughs> I,
0: I do wonder though, like the current sort of big names when it comes to social media, like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're going to be uncool for like his age group. That's just going to be like old, where old people go to like yell at each other. I don't think they're going to be into it. Like there'll be something else
1: there'll be there'll be something else and I think that's the thing so l- let me let me kind of bring it back to to some rapid fire ones so minimum age for your son owning a smartphone
0: definitely high school because of just practicality and even safety reasons knowing where he is and being him being able to call i guess i mean he'll be in year 5 this year so i don't think i can't imagine we would be getting him a smartphone this year i know that some kids have them in year 6 I've heard, but I think for us that we'll probably try and avoid that one. I don't think we'll be like ahead of the curve on that one, put it that way.
1: All right. So we're talking about maybe access to a smartphone at the beginning of high school and social media accounts at the same time?
0: Uh, well, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, if if all of his friends use like a, a chatting app or something i guess i i would find it hard to say no to that if it's then like another platform like instagram or something like that i I don't i don't even know what kids would want to um sign up to but this is the thing right it'll be something that we don't even understand
1: yeah it's a pretty scary prospect right that that kind of throw into the wilderness and and partly is because we know like we know what it's like (laughs) and how crazy things can get Even like thinking back on my experience of exploring the internet with two parents that didn't really know anything about computers, I had free reign and there was some pretty crazy stuff going on, you know, like this whole two girls, one cup thing, that that definitely was innocence lost (laughs) back in the day, right?
0: Um, Our less curious listeners might not
1: know what two girls, one cup is. (laughs) Do you want to paint a picture? um... So two girls, one cup is a, I suppose it's a, performance art piece and it's pretty much the name says it all you know there are there are two girls in the film and they do share one cup and i think for our age group it was a bit of a rite of passage of finding the grossest thing you could on the internet or the most offensive thing and like watching it have your eyes bleed for a second laugh with your mates and it was almost like, okay, you've seen it now, right? You've seen the depths of uh, what the internet can provide. What is the next generation going to have, right? Like, I feel like it's on this upward trajectory of like, you know, logging on and seeing the Taliban behead someone, and and you know, like, I don't know.
0: No, see, I think they're different dimensions. I think if, in fact, the early days of the internet, it was more of a like the wild, wild west than it is even today. Like, because the social media stuff is a completely different dimension. That that's just shock value, right? And. I don't actually think you can get worse than that
1: stuff. I don't think it exists in real life. Um, oh, I mean that's, that's because you haven't thought of it, but then, well, there's there probably is worse out
0: there. Well, there might be, but like I think even today, it's actually even harder to find that stuff now because the internet itself I think the the social media stuff, and maybe this is a good pivot in terms of it's actually like a bit more serious than maybe I mean we've we've already gone through some negative consequences of maybe social media as we know it today. But it gets worse, really, doesn't it? There's a book called Surveillance Capitalism by an author, Shoshana Zuboff. It's a long book, and she goes through all of the ins and outs of social media. And look, I I read it a couple of years ago, so I, I don't have a really vivid memory of everything in the book. But there was one thing which speaks to this really kind of even more darker, pernicious side of social media, is this the old adage that, like if you're not being sold the product, you are the product. But what she says is actually, well, you're certainly not being sold the product because you don't pay to join Facebook or Twitter or whatever, but you're not even the product for an advertiser. So it's not even that people are selling things to you. So it begs this question, well, if you're not being sold the product and you're not the product itself, then what is the product? Where Where is the money coming from? And anyway, and then I think one of the like, Premises is that, well, no, I, actually, what these social media platforms are doing is they're really capturing our behavioral data and they're really capturing our digital labor and they're learning how to manipulate us. And this data is like gives them like almost like a really super powerful position. And when we talk about like things like AI, they've basically built these models by harvesting a whole bunch of real life data from human beings and then you know through neural networks i i don't understand how ai really works i'm not going to pretend to but my very basic understanding is it just analyzes lots of actual real life real world interactions and then models off that the artificial intelligence so they're actually kind of learning to be us and manipulate us in a way that's quite scary and could have some quite significant consequences
1: particularly when it's completely unregulated yeah, it is, it is quite scary. It's like this kind of outdated term now, I suppose, of big data. And for a long time, it's it's worthless because no one knows how to mine it properly. It's a cost to store it. But the end game, like you said, could be something a lot scarier. And also, like alongside of that is obviously the the common one that people mention around privacy. It's like how horrific would it be for your digital history to be shared, right? Um, because it just it provides so many... Intimate details about your life, and like you said, in terms of AI and predicting behavior and and, and what people are concerned about in the middle of the night, what people, what questions they need answering, all these things, right? I mean, the the privacy piece is like
0: for me, orders of magnitude less uh, of a concern because, in the sense that, well, you know, if you if you want to be private, then just don't engage with them, and the, you know, if or if you put it out there, then you have to sort of assume that it's it's public, but. What makes the behavioral stuff and the, their ability to sort of manipulate us like? Um, I think one of the first examples was Pokemon Go, where a tool or a platform was being used to literally control people and to literally affect the decisions that people make. And I'm not 100% sure if, you know, what the com- whether, like, on what commercial basis these arrangements took place, but like, essentially, if you're like a restaurant and you say, "Hey, I want like hordes of people outside my restaurant at like seven o'clock on Thursday," how much do I need to pay to make this happen? And Pokemon Go can actually make it happen. It can actually put people in a location because it's like it's release just the
1: Charizard.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like you, you might say, "Well, no one loses. Like this is this is a good thing in the sense that." But like, what happens when it gets more sophisticated? This is the kind of stuff that I think is um, problematic or at least makes people
1: a little bit nervous about it. It definitely is. And I think um, there's that really the future and the, the potential for sophisticated AI to really manipulate people on a mass scale. But there's also silent actors that we've kind of seen, right? Like the Russian bot farms and using kind of elements to destabilize and connect rioters with other rioters and causing conflict and stuff. I think it's being seen as a real weakness of the West
0: i I think another aspect is um you know and particularly where you have people who are very reliant on social media for their source of information and news, and the algorithm can kind of really cause havoc and I'm thinking in particular of the Rohingya in Burma, yeah, massive civil unrest because you know you had like one sort of having their worst views of another group of people who are sort of considered outsiders, you know, the echo chamber amplified really.
1: Aren't they pressing for uh, reparations or something of that, or damages?
0: I don't know the the full detail, but I think there's a, a very strong sense that, um, you know, Facebook has, I mean, I, I was about to say Facebook has a, a lot to answer for, but I don't think it's, in some ways, it's not fair to sort of say to like, oh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg should have been aware and should have known and should have been able to stop this. This is even more sort of like they've invented this beast and they kind of don't know really what it's doing and maybe that's half the problem, right? That um, they've birthed this sort of monstrosity and um, yeah. these things happen and they can't really quite Pandora's anticipate. box, right? Yeah. But maybe just to take a slightly different direction, social media and the public square. So, I mean, I think increasingly there is this notion that you know and freedom of speech type issues where social media is the place where people are communicating now and social media is the new public square and to have your view and to express your view and to engage in civil society express your opinions you need to be on social media which puts a lot of power and influence into social media giants and you know the key platforms and this has sort of had a bit of controversy because and, you know, um, Twitter is probably the most famous example, but, like, there are people who've been kicked off social media and Donald Trump was kicked off Twitter and Elon's, uh, you know, got Twitter back and sort of said, oh, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, restore the public square or we're going to make it all. But, like, just to your point, we were discussing sort of moderation before, like, you kind of do need to moderate them because they just just become like a cesspool. And then the question is, if you are going to moderate it, how do you moderate it? Whose judgment... Do you use and and because we like I guess for the reason you need to moderate it like one view you might be well just whatever you say is fine like anything goes but you actually have false and misleading information put out there and it can get actually quite serious like it can, you have doxing where people give the address of someone and then it actually turns into like real world violence or whatever so you actually kind of yeah. do like there is a responsibility to moderate it to some extent
1: it's it's not a job that any rational person would want and I think that's where Elon's post was so hilarious. Um, Uh, he's pretty funny for an autistic guy isn't he he's just uh he's like yeah i'll find it. i'll step down as ceo as soon as i find someone crazy enough to take the job (laughs) he doesn't take a genius to realize you're stuck between a rock and a hard place right you're never going to make everyone happy i think he's realized that now after he's bought the thing well you know what what do you do when you have that much money or you're a sucker for punishment in, in your work but like i think when it flows over into the real world it is really tough to manage this right like and and you need I don't know. Maybe we need even more creative ways to deal with it. Maybe it's like it'll get to the stage where it's seen as the same way as jury duty—that there's actually a public service that you need to you need to like devote a part of your time on a, to to kind of be part of a team that does censor things like this um, over time. You know,
0: it's you know a post gets flagged as like that's inappropriate or whatever then, you know, presumably there's some sort of algorithmic approach to kind of address, you know, determine, okay, is there like the critical swear word or whatever? But then it goes to like some chat center in the Philippines or whatever to
1: review and say, yeah, that's fine. That's <laughs> above board. That's not above board. And I mean like... Well, you- I mean, our promos got pulled up for breaking nudity and <laughs> obscenity guidelines. So, you know, the algorithm is obviously not perfect. No, okay. that's right. And, and, and one
0: aspect as well is like when you have like particularly around truth like what like is it true false or misleading information especially like during covid it's like you think how does like someone working in these gigs in the philippines know what's real and not real about covid like how how are they how do they possess the skills to make those kind of judgment calls but anyway and then it gets you know the go ahead or it gets knocked back or whatever but i suppose to your comment around like jury duty or whatever i think that to me speaks to a different point which is like do the platforms own do they have a right to just say no no we do it our way and if you don't like it don't use it and we're not going to do this elaborate thing that you've just proposed like a jury duty thing it's like no no it's going to be our way or the highway and the issue with that i guess or why it becomes contentious is like silicon valley where these platforms kind of originate from is like notorious for being of a well i mean one might say woke or what you know whatever the you know Whatever the slurs you might want to use, but you know, of a different mindset on a lot of yeah. issues than other people in
1: in the population. I mean, the answer to that question, you know, legally, is that they can do what they want, right? At the end of the day, it is a product. We are consumers. We have a choice. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, legally, of course, that's the case.
0: But I guess the question is, should should that be the case? And yeah, I mean,
1: well, you see, like, what what are your thoughts on things like Rumble and other you know platforms that pretty much have their have their terms stated on entrance? Like this is what you're getting into. This is a place for more conservative values or red pill values or whatever it is, right? Is it is it okay for us to elect ourselves into those spaces?
0: Well, in some ways I think that's worse because that just uh, like accelerates the, you know, the divide in terms of like we we see our own little echo chambers. But I guess in terms of the actual consent and whatever, I think generally there's police still, like I think there's there's like portion of the population they tend to be thought leaders or opinion leaders or whatever who who are all active on twitter and social media and obsessed with it and think that it's the public square but overestimate genuinely how inf- like so if you're engaging like 100 on twitter and, and you, all your friends and you, you have your little platform on twitter and you just talk to yourselves on twitter then you think oh yeah of course this is like really important but like meanwhile the rest of us are still reading the newspaper, watching the six o'clock news, talking to... F- it's
1: not on the project, I don't want to hear it.
0: Friends and colleagues, you know, like this is how all the rest of us are sort of engaging and it's not quite the world, I think, those obsessed with this idea that it needs to be regulated kind of. Because, I mean, that's what the, that's what it would be, right? It would be some sort of regulated... And then that's worse and you have government citing how it should all be done. So I'm not sure that's an improvement. Yeah,
1: it's, it's definitely a complicated landscape. Do you view it as moderation or censorship? Because they're kind of, they're blurred, right? And it's it's required, a certain level of moderation slash censorship is needed to make the platform usable. Maybe where the, what the
0: accusation that gets made is that people do censorship under the guise of moderation. So like to take Twitter, like if Twitter is more left-leaning for lack of a better framing, then it's more likely to culturally go harder on posts that are generally right-leaning it's going to be more sensitive to pick those up because that's like a, a bias in in the in the culture of the organization so we've talked about a lot of things today impacts algorithms pros cons and so on just thinking about the future of social media and you touched on it before so i guess just thinking about the future of social media um where is this all headed
1: i think it's like a different question of the future of the internet versus social media and i think that social media and what that forms into and how we connect i do tend to think it's going to be much more of a augmented reality style approach so in the way like someone like a, a pro kind of augmented reality advocate like i say a zuckerberg describes it where you know it's such a revelation what video video calling has done for relationships right that are across distance, I think that will continue to evolve in terms of, uh, you know, at work or at the dinner table, maybe a portion, a percentage of the people there will actually be holographic or augmented in some way in a real enough experience to actually get more social interaction and social benefit from them being there. So I do see that coming to the table and whether that's through wearables or other technology to help you. I mean, look how we're talking today. You know, like this is a really strong form of connection. We're having a great conversation and it's, it's remote. You know, and I think that that will continue to build and build and they'll find better ways to do that. The second one that I'll just drop in there is that I do have this feeling that in the in strive for connection and what social media is trying to, to do for us, it will be increasingly harder and perhaps more explicitly that we will interact with non-human entities. And now maybe this is pushing the horizon a little bit further than <laughs> your original question, but I do think that they're... In, in the future, um, whether it's us or different generations, Come we on, will be just, having... just
0: tell us. What do you, what do you call your sex doll? <laughs>
1: <What's laughs> El Manuel. It's definitely kitty. I definitely can see a future where you can develop an AI conversation to have with people who are isolated and need connection and it being able to mimic to a strong enough, authentic enough degree to give that isolated person benefits, social benefits. So that's kind of where I'll... I'll leave it. What about you?
0: Well, I'm actually probably fairly close to 180 degrees opposite to you in terms of where I think (laughs) the future is. I mean, just to touch on the last bit first, I cannot imagine a world where people get anything out of a close relationship with something that they know to be not real. So I think the reason we want human level contact is because we want because we want human level contact, like we don't we don't want to just talk to a chatbot right. We want well, my to my point
1: is you might not be able to tell though, Andy.
0: Well you but then that's just reinforces why we'll want the human to human and not the and not the the digital version of a human, right? So so I think we're we're like many things, you know it's it's social media working with real human interaction together that works. And I think you know maybe in some respects, the kind of the sweet spot, might be to you know kind of keep the feet firmly planted in the real world in terms of being connected to people using tools to connect to the people that you know and you love and your friends and whatever in real life but i guess that's sort of the the artificial piece like i think we'll be using artificial t- intelligence and chatbots for you know m- maybe more transactional things like you know you need to open a bank account or something uh, rather well, we already
1: are doing that yeah
0: yeah so so that stuff i don't see that as like off the table but like our craving our human desire for human interaction i don't think that can ever be met in circumstances where we know it not to be real because i don't think we want like that's a killer like that's a that's a deal breaker in terms of relationships and then turning to your sort of vision for like you know the dinner party with the i mean, sorry, I don't don't want to misquote you, but the dinner party with, you know, a few friends together and then a couple of video screens with like augmented reality where others participate or whatever. I don't know, I, I find that hard to imagine too because like I kind of think people who are sort of into this stuff and really like they don't have the attention span to like engage in a dinner party, you know. So I guess my vision, so to present where I think this is all headed, I actually think we might have like two different tribes emerge and i think I, we already sort of see it a little bit already i think we might have like the real world people who kind of almost check out of like social media and they they disengage from it in the obsessive sense and it's like we're now people are like quitting twitter or whatever or they're deleting their facebook account like there'll be some of that and then the other group will be almost and i kind of think about like video gamers right who get obsessive about it and this augmented, like, to be honest, I cannot say the, like, that first group that I met just mentioned getting into that whole VR thing, right, where you, you have your, you know, you have a VR and you have your avatar. Now, I, and I'm sure there's lots of people like me who don't want a part of that. And so
1: I guess the question is, will future generations want a part of that? I, I just, I don't know. You'd be surprised, though. Like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine anyone using Q... Tolerating something simple like QR code menus in in like certain person who just totally revolt against that. But, but, no, but
0: you, you can't because you can see the intrinsic like value of it, right? If you say to someone in the 50s, you say, Do you know in the future you won't even need to get up and order your drinks at the bar? You will be able to pull out a thing from your pocket, scan the table, and order. Dr-. They go, Oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to live in that dream future.
1: No, it's, it's just. It's a pain in the ass. Like you got to load it up. You got to wait for your phone to load. You now it's now it's a different text. You got to put in your you got to put in your credit card. You don't have like all this stuff, right? Like it's like I just want to talk to someone. Bring me my my food. You, again, it goes back to that human touch, right?
0: What we're talking about now is a preference for how you engage with other human beings, and that's like core to our being, right? So replacing actual human engagement with a very inferior, not just a little bit not just a little bit inferior but very inferior
1: it won't be, it won't be very inferior and he says so for example just follow me for for one second imagine being able to transcend achieve some form of transcendence right so you could take someone's brain and upload it into the ai and all of a sudden they become something you can interact with either through a hologram or whatever it is so all of a sudden you could sit your kid down with Abraham Lincoln or you could have a conversation with your grandfather they had every memory that they ever that they ever had they had an an ai learning thing they could converse with you wouldn't there be value in that and wouldn't people want to use that
0: but the value from that isn't as a substitute for real world human
1: to human contact i agree with you but there's extra there's a different type of value that will meet a social need for connection and conversation
0: but it's a, it's a it's a novelty it's not a it, I don't
1: think it is though imagine what you could learn from someone like that
0: Yeah but it's but in the same way as you learn from reading a wikipedia page like I mean you don't yeah I love reading a wikipedia page but like I mean I think essentially what you've like outlined like in the Abraham Lincoln situation is like Abraham Lincoln's like wikipedia page on steroids right sure I enjoy reading it but like like Abraham Lincoln's wikipedia page isn't going to become my best friend right so um well
1: if you, could, if you could talk back.
0: Uh, still not going to become my best friend. I,
1: we could have him on as a guest. He could be doing this podcast.
0: <laughs> in Disneyland, there's an animatronic version of Abraham Lincoln, you know, somewhere in the park. You know, I'm sure it looks kind of cl- real in a clunky kind of 1950s sort of way. But, like, let's be honest, you're not going to be friends with the animatronic Abraham Lincoln in Disneyland,
1: right? no one like you- tell that to dave cat who has like a 100 sex dolls <laughs> i
0: think he just he was like the ultimate internet celebrity that um <laughs> like worked out he could get extra fame if he went along with it i reckon it's my theory yeah.
1: but I, I do agree it's not it's not about it's not a like a or it's like a and right and like all of these things they start as an early adopter thing and they get better and better until they convince the mass market
0: the moment you call someone a friend or you you invest, like you upgrade them in the membership of, of your life. You're not just saying that they're a useful person in your life. So, you, AI might be a useful thing in your life, and so you so you might kind of say, "Hey, that that AI that drove my you know talks to me when it's driving me to the airport. Yeah, it's very useful that AI." But yeah. Like there's a deeper connection that I think is accompanied with calling someone a friend or
1: yeah you know a partner a lover or whatever right I think you're overestimating what some people need like clients routinely fall in love with their therapists there's a well documented kind of effect that happens
0: it's it's the real person ingredient I'm just looking forward to the day where AI is paying taxes well they might they might do us